Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We got out of the wreckage with our own means, thankfully. A Syrian citizen helped us. We survived, but our family is still trapped inside. My mother and sister are still in the wreckage. We are waiting for them. The death toll in Turkey and Syria has topped 36,000 and counting. A week after twin earthquakes devastated the region and left millions homeless. We'll go to Syria for the latest, then speak with a U.N. special rapporteur who's calling for international sanctions to be lifted to help the people of Syria. Then we look at 25 years of V-Day, the global movement to end sexual violence. We have most importantly built a global network of gorgeous solidarity in almost every country of the world where activists give their lives to a world where women, trans, and non-binary people are safe, free, and empowered. And this has happened because of you. Because of you. Because of we. We'll speak to V-Day founder, the playwright, activist, and author V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, as well as Monique Wilson of One Billion Rising in the Philippines and Christine Schuler Describer in the Democratic Republic of Congo, director of City of Joy, a revolutionary community for women survivors of gender violence. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.N.'s head of aid operations said the earthquake rescue phase is coming to a close, and efforts would turn to providing shelter, food and care to survivors, as the combined death toll in Turkey and Syria tops 36,000, with that number expected to rise. A little over one week after the first 7.8 magnitude quake rocked the two countries, the hope for miraculous rescues is fading and anger is mounting. As the U.N. admits relief efforts failed the people in northwest Syria. On Friday, the Syrian government approved aid deliveries to the rebel-held northwest after major delays to the war-torn region. Over 5 million additional people in Syria may become homeless after the quakes, as the region also faces winter blizzards and an ongoing cholera outbreak. Meanwhile, in Turkey, authorities ordered 113 arrests linked to the construction of collapsed buildings. Some 25,000 buildings collapsed or were da badly damaged. Opposition parties have accused the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of not enforcing regulations. Some survivors, meanwhile, say rescue operations never reached them as their loved ones were stuck under the rebel. 
The situation is beyond terrible here. My mother and sister are still under the rubble, and I cannot reach them in any way. My soul is gone. They're dying under the rubble. I'm dying here. I don't expect anything from the government. From this point on, everyone's blood is on their hands. President Erdogan has admitted to shortcomings in the country's response to the disaster. We'll have the latest on the earthquake from Syria after headlines. And Israel protesters are massing outside the Knesset in Jerusalem as the far-right ruling coalition advanced a plan to expand its power and weaken the judiciary. Over the weekend, tens of thousands demonstrated against the government for the fifth straight week as President Isaac Herzog issued a rare warning. We are long past being in a political argument. Rather, we are on the brink of constitutional and social collapse. I feel, we all feel, that we are barely a moment away from a collision, and even from a violent collision. This comes as Israel legalized nine illegal outposts in the occupied West Bank, turning them into settlements and a move the Palestinian Authority likened to an open war. The Biden administration said it opposed the plan, though it's not clear if it will take any action against Israel. Meanwhile, on Friday, a Palestinian driver rammed a car into a crowd outside Jerusalem, killing two Israeli children and one man. The next day, a Palestinian man was fatally shot by an Israeli settler in the northern West Bank, an Israeli force killed a 14-year-old teenager Sunday in a raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. The Pentagon says U.S. forces killed 12 al-Shabaab fighters in an airstrike in a remote area of Somalia Friday, claiming no civilians were killed or injured. It was impossible to independently verify. Last year, the Biden administration redeployed hundreds of special operations troops to Somalia after then-President Trump withdrew them in 2020. The Pentagon says U.S. fighter jets shot down three unidentified objects from the skies above Alaska, Canada's Yukon, and Michigan over the weekend. A White House spokesperson said the objects posed a danger to civil aviation and were much smaller than a Chinese high-altitude surveillance balloon the Air Force shot down off the coast of South Carolina a few weeks ago. That incident prompted Secretary of State Antony Blinken to cancel a planned trip to Beijing. Over the weekend, the Commerce Department announced it would sanction six Chinese companies said to support China's spy balloon program. In Beijing, China's foreign ministry said the U.S. illegally flew high-altitude balloons into Chinese airspace more than 10 times over the past year as part of a much broader spy program. Chinese spokesperson Wang Wenbin said, quote, for the longest time, the U.S. has abused its own technological advantages to carry out large-scale and indiscriminate wiretapping and theft of secrets from all over the world, including from its allies, unquote. Meanwhile, when asked whether extraterrestrial aliens could be the source of the unidentified objects, the commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command said, quote, I don't rule out anything. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva met with President Biden at the White House on Friday, where Biden condemned violent extremism following last month's attack on government buildings in Brasilia one week after Lula's inauguration. The assault by supporters of far-right former President Jair Bolsonaro immediately drew comparisons with the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection just two years earlier. Brazil, the United States, stand together. We reject political violence, and we put great value in our democratic institutions. 
The pair also discussed the climate crisis. After the meeting, Lula said he was confident the U.S. would join a fund to protect the Amazon from deforestation. I am convinced that we are in a different era. Brazil has returned to the world stage and is using its political power, the respectability that Brazil has earned, so that people together with other countries comply with the tasks we have to fulfill for humanity. Brazilian government data show deforestation in the Amazon decreased in January, the first month of Lula's presidency, compared to the same period last year. While in D.C., Lula also met with progressive lawmakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders, and Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and with the heads of major U.S. unions. A warning to our viewers, this headline contains descriptions and images of police violence. In North Carolina, newly released police body camera video shows Daryl Tyree Williams, an unarmed 32-year-old black man, warning he had heart problems after a group of Raleigh officers repeatedly tasered him until he lost consciousness. Williams is heard telling officers, I've got heart problems, please, please. Despite the appeal, officers tased Williams a third time. He died about an hour after his violent arrest January 17th. Six officers have been placed on administrative leave while the Raleigh Police Department carries out an investigation. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation is also conducting its own probe. In Spain, more than a quarter million people marched through central Madrid Sunday to oppose the dismantling of the public health system by the capital region's right-wing government. The massive protest was led by unions who complained of long patient waiting lists and staff shortages. Well, our situation is getting worse and worse as we have fewer resources and less staff. We believe that everything that is being done is in favor of private health, and it's a business. We think we have to fight against this and defend the public health system, as it's what makes us all equal. In Portugal, more than 150,000 school teachers and their supporters marched through Lisbon Saturday to protest soaring inflation and low wages. Portugal's lowest paid teachers earn less than $1,200 a month. They're demanding pay increases, less punishing schedules and faster career progression. We've been badly treated for a long time by a society that forgets the importance and responsibilities of education. So we are here today and we will be here for many more days to come. In France, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of cities nationwide Saturday in a fourth day of action against plans to slash the nation's pension system. Unions estimated over a half million people joined protests in Paris to oppose President Emmanuel Macron's bid to raise the age of retirement from 62 to 64. At least six refugees died after their inflatable boat was adrift at sea for several days as they tried to reach the Canary Islands in Spain. Twenty-three others on board were rescued near the island of Tenerife. The boat had departed from a coast near the city of Dakla in western Sahara. A Spanish humanitarian group estimates nearly 2,000 refugees died in 2022 while trying to reach the Canary Islands by boat. New Zealand's declared a state of emergency in several regions, including its largest city of Auckland, as Cyclone Gabrielle roared ashore at high tide, bringing powerful winds, dangerous storm surge and torrential rains. Emergency officials warned residents in low-lying areas to evacuate ahead of the storm's arrival, which follows record rainfall last month that caused extensive flooding and left four people dead. Enough uh, that please have a plan to leave your home if you see water levels rising around you or if you're worried about land stability around your property. Um, don't wait to be told to leave. 
This comes as raging wildfires in Chile have killed over two dozen people, displaced thousands, scorched some 1,400 square miles of forest. And in Norway, Greenpeace activists have disembarked a massive shell oil vessel after 13 days of occupation and a 2,500-mile journey. Before the vessel docked at the port of Haugesund, the six activists climbed the platform's flare boom, waving a banner that said, stop drilling, start paying. They first boarded the vessel north of the Canary Islands two weeks ago, calling on Shell and other fossil fuel corporations to take responsibility for their role in climate change and to pay loss and damage funds to help poorer countries who bear the brunt of the global disaster. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is warning the death toll in Turkey and northwest Syria from last week's devastating earthquakes will top at least 50,000. As of Monday morning, over 36,000 deaths had been reported, and the number keeps rising. The U.N.'s head of aid operations said the earthquake rescue phase is coming to a close, and efforts will turn to providing shelter, food, and care to survivors. Millions have been left homeless, including many Syrian refugees who were displaced by the war in Syria that began almost 12 years ago. At a hospital in the Syrian city of Idlib, Dr. Mustafa al-Yamani described working around the clock for the past week to help victims of the earthquake. There were a lot of very tough cases, one of which was a three-month-old baby who lost his entire family. He's the only survivor, and he was in critical condition. The resources at our disposal are limited compared to the scale of the disaster, and in this area, in the rebel-held areas, we don't have the infrastructure or hospitals to receive such numbers of patients. On Sunday, United Nations aid chief Martin Griffiths traveled to Aleppo, Syria, to survey the damage. Behind us is just one small piece of the terrible tragedy that came here on the 6th of February. I have been hearing stories here in Aleppo this morning that chill you with what happened on those early hours of that terrible day. And what is the most striking here is even in Aleppo, which has suffered so much these many years, this moment, that moment, a week or more ago, was about the worst that these people have experienced. People who lost their children, some of whom escaped, others stayed in the building. The trauma of the people we spoke to was visible. And this is a trauma which the world needs to heal. And the reason we're here is because we want to raise money for the brave organizations which are helping these people of Aleppo, these people of Syria. We begin today's show in Damascus, the capital of Syria, where we're joined by Emma Forster, Syria Policy and Communications Manager of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Emma, welcome to Democracy Now!, this absolutely catastrophic time for the people of Syria, particularly in the Northwest. Can you talk about what they are facing right now as they deal with not only the earthquakes, but the ravages of war for over a decade? 
Yes, as has already been mentioned, the situation in the northwest is absolutely heartbreaking. We're hearing that up to five, over five million people have could be left homeless. People are on the streets; they are without shelter. We're hearing of um, hospitals that have been destroyed. The ones that are open are over capacity. There isn't the the staff or the equipment to treat people. Schools are being used as collective shelters, which means that schools have stopped. Many have lost loved ones, and there is an urgent um, need for more international assistance, which is currently lacking. So can you talk about what the people of Syria face? Uh, what, 90 percent of the people live below the poverty line already? The lack of electricity? This is extremely serious when it comes to the freezing cold. Yeah, so already prior to the earthquake, the situation was that the, a huge percentage of the Syrian population was already beneath the poverty poverty line, especially in the northwest. There was already a major lack of fuel in the country, which was putting all public services at the point of collapse. There wasn't electricity um, in many places for more than a couple of hours a day. People are relying largely on generators to heat their homes, which they didn't have. Before the earthquake, people were burning anything they could find to to provide heat and to cook basic meals. And now all of this has been aggravated by the earthquake. Um, the latest news that on Friday, uh, the Syrian government approved aid deliveries to the rebel-held Northwest after major delays uh, in the war-torn region. If you could talk about the area that was hit, divided by the rebel-held territory and, um, you know, the territory that the government controls, but what this meant for the people who live there. Sure. So the earthquake hit both government-controlled and non-government-controlled areas, hitting um, the worst affected areas are in the non-government-controlled areas in the northwest of the country. And already prior to the earthquake, there was only one area that was um, one border crossing that was being used between Turkey and Syria for aid to be able to come in through, um, through the UN. And so this area was affected by the earthquake. So there were several days of delays before any aid was able to come through that through that crossing, and now aid has started to, to come in slowly, but it is nowhere near enough. And at the same time, the aid that does come through from that area is often reliant on the market that is available in Turkey. And now, obviously, the markets in Turkey are highly affected, which is going to hinder what can be procured and brought in for the response in the northwest of Syria. At the same time, um, in government-controlled areas, yes, there has been a blanket approval, apparently, for aid to be delivered into areas that are not under government control. Control, but there have still been, still been delays in approvals that we're not seeing aid uh, going in at the speed that it needs to. I'm looking at the tweets of your organization, the Norwegian Refugee Council. There is no time for hesitation. Provide the funds that Syrians need and save lives now. Talking to donors, also the whole issue of access, both from Syria and from Turkey, to help the people who have been so devastated for so long, Emma. Yes, that's correct. What we need now is more funding immediately in, in order to be able to scale up our operations. We are present across the country and we are ready to respond, but we lack the funding. Currently, we have uh, funding to get us through this initial phase and we started immediately responding with the existing stock that we had to be able to implement immediately, but we need an urgent scale up of funding in order for us to be able to scale up our response to the existing needs. At the same time, this is a crisis on top of a crisis and the humanitarian needs that were there before the earthquake have not gone away. So we need donors to scale up their funding, provide new funding and not reallocate existing funding because the people of Syria that were in need before the earthquake, they still need us and we still need to be able to go on and implement our existing programs. 
Emma Forster, we want to thank you for being with us from Damascus, the capital of Syria, Syria Policy and Communications Manager for the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, based in Damascus. Next up, we'll speak to a U.N. special rapporteur calling for international sanctions to be lifted to help the people of Syria. Stay with us. Hey, yo, grew with the mayor, has it on the sayer, weigh the 18 mil, even still, sack a bag of troubles, make a single double, loop the coin and join the minimum wage. I had a plan if I was the man, I pro the jet, lay it low and leg mad cassettes. I unconditioned my ways of the everyday sunset, waging my days to the one bit, cause it breaks, I had the capital case, weather mine, out of line, I breathe until the early morning. Freak the wake call, I get a tap on my shoulder, cause the days of the breaks be just about the arts of the six won't play my bag of chips. I got the sevens in my pocket somewhere. Reason for the cheer or temperature here. I keep it to the rear and then I'm exploding. I'll be the fab, I'll be the fabulous, but see, I like the cheer. I got the flea up in the name. Can you know what my cousin from the feet of pipe? I like the others latching on the wind. I put the fame. Pass the task to ask about the native tongue again. My friend, I tell you, jungle brothers on the run. I'm shaking hands with many devils in the industry. Believe the genesis like it was lose me that I'm just like the Trugoy, the dev's verse from De La Soul's Break It On. The visionary rapper and producer died this weekend at the age of 54. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria that have killed at least 36,000 people, but the estimates are expected to far surpass 50,000. The earthquakes left millions homeless, including many Syrian refugees who already fled their homes due to 12 years of war in Syria. We're joined now by Helena Doan, uh, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of the unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights. In November, she urged nations to lift unilateral sanctions against Syria, saying they, quote, severely harm human rights and prevent any efforts for early recovery, rebuilding and reconstruction. Joining us now from Minsk, Belarus, where she's a professor of international law at the Belarusian State University. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor Doan. If you can start off by talking about what you're calling for. Good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to share because uh, basically I would refer not only to my end of mission statement, but to the latest press release, which has just been released on Friday by 10 special rapporteurs calling to lift sanctions and provide for the free delivery of humanitarian assistance to Syria to provide human needs without any discrimination. Uh, I call to lift unilateral sanctions because um, people of Syria are currently deprived of any possibility to rebuild their country, and their country needed reconstruction before the earthquake because of the 12 years of military hostility and naturally the need for reconstruction of all sorts of uh, critical infrastructure starting from electricity, water, and up to shelter, education, as well as other needs is even more urgent now. Secondly, I call for all sanctioning states on the first help to provide for the possibility to deliver humanitarian assistance to Syria uh, in a free way. Uh, I need to say that I very positively know the U.S. steps which was taken on the 8th of February about issuing the general license number 23. But unfortunately, I believe it's not sufficient so far because many private businesses, many Banks are very scared to provide for the possibility of bank transfers, and therefore people can't get basic needs. 
uh, I have co-listened to the statement of the Norwegian Refugee Council, and I can say that I have been the eyewitness of all the elements she has mentioned, and more, that's why I'm joining her call for, to all donors to help Syrian people via donations, but they need not only money, they need long lists of goods starting from food, medicine, medical equipment, blankets, clothes, up to the recovery machinery, fuel, vehicles, and many other elements. So I'm also calling to all the donors to help people on the ground, and I hope we'll call on sanctioned states to, to lift sanctions and to do all their best to make sure that no one overcomplies and people get, can get their life-saving goods. This is United Nations Humanitarian Chief Martin Griffith speaking along uh, at the Bab al-Hawa border crossing between Turkey and northwest Syria. We're going to be doing an appeal for a three-month humanitarian phase for the earthquake response. We're going to push it out in the next day or two. It's going to require the kind of generosity from member states and individuals and the private sector that we have already seen in the international response to the earthquake in Turkey and elsewhere. Your response to what um, the, your final comments on what you feel people aren't understanding about this catastrophe. In the situation of the uh, use of unilateral sanctions, people probably do not understand that Syria has already been much destroyed and people were in need. They already lived with 90% poverty, enormous food and health insecurity. Now the need is even more urgent. We are speaking about hundreds and thousands and even millions of people's lives to be at risk. And we want to thank you for being with us, United Nations Special Rapporteur, on the negative impact of the unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights, professor of international law at the Belarusian State University in Minsk. Next up, it's the 25th anniversary of V-Day, the 10th anniversary of One Billion Rising, and the release of V's book, formerly known as Eve Ensler. It's called Reckoning. Stay with us. In a time of upheaval, we'll come a transformation. Ignite a fire that will burn like the sun. Become a strong movement, fierce and determined. singing the anthem for one billion rising, we are rising. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As many mark Valentine's Day on Tuesday, this year, February 14th, also marks the 25th anniversary of V-Day, the global movement to end violence against women, gender-expansive people, girls, and the planet. It's also the 10th anniversary of V-Day's One Billion Rising campaign, which is a call to action based on the staggering reality that one in three women on the planet will be beaten or raped during her lifetime. The movement brings together activism and art to transform systems and change culture. It was founded by the activist V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, author of The Vagina Monologues. This comes as V's new book, her second memoir, has just been released. It's called Reckoning. This is actress Rosario Dawson speaking, uh, reading an excerpt from the chapter titled To All Those Who Dare Rob Us of Our Bodily Choice. She was reading at an event at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. This is not a law yet. <laughs> And we will never accept this ruling. Mm. Perhaps because you have never known what it is like to have your body controlled by the vindictive anonymous state. To be raped and forced to keep your baby at 12 years old. To be so desperate that you destroy your uterus with a hanger or bleed to death in a back alley. You do not understand that once you have tasted the sweetness of freedom, of choice, once you have come to know your body as your own, once you have freed yourself and felt the expanse of your body, the aliveness in every pore that rises from autonomy, there is no way you will ever give that up. Mm. Ever. And because you do not know this, you do not know how dangerous we are. <laughs> How organized we are. How willing we are to go to any lengths to preserve our freedom. That's actor Rosario Dawson reading from Reckoning, the new memoir by V, formerly Vensler, who joins us today to mark V25. That's right, the 25th anniversary of V-Day. This year, the call is for the world to rise for freedom, freedom from patriarchy and from all its progeny. We're joined now by two more forces behind V-Day and the One Billion Rising campaign, which over the last 25 years has built a global network of solidarity, including opening safe houses and the City of Joy in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Joining us from Manila, the Philippines, Monique Wilson, Global Director of One Billion Rising, which has 1,000 One Billion Rising events taking place in 88 countries this week. And Christine Schuler-Descriver is Director of V-Day Congo, co-founder and director of City of Joy, Revolutionary Community for Women Survivors of Gender Violence. She's speaking to us from Bukavu in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has graduated over 1,900 leaders at City of Joy. And, of course, we're joined by V formerly Eve Ensler. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! V. If you can start off, I mean, I was there at this um, remarkable event at the 92nd Street Y, hundreds of people packed 
stepped in to celebrate all of these moments, 25th anniversary of E-Day, 10th anniversary of Billion Rising, and your second memoir, Reckoning. Talk about the significance of this year. Tomorrow is the actual day of, of our 25th anniversary. But I want to say that um, it's a very emotional, political, artistic milestone. And uh, before I begin, I just want to honor the women of Iran and Afghanistan, the women who are suffering in Congo for being such models to all of us of freedom. And to say, you know, these 25 years are connected to a chain of warriors who came before us. But we've, you know, still may not have dismantled patriarchy or ended violence against all trans and non-binary people and women. But we certainly have made a mark. We've shifted the dialogue. We've disrupted the normal. We brought the issue to the front and center. You know, when we started, you couldn't say the word vagina. We can say it now. And we've helped make violence against women a front page issue. We've, you know, this movement's been instrumental in changing laws and traditions and deepened and expanded the story, understanding that we can't end violence without looking at all the intersecting violences of racism, capitalism, climate catastrophe, imperialism. And and if I think about Christine and I think about Monique and I think about, you know, we've opened safe houses in the in, in Kenya, uh, the amazing city of joy in the DRC, the city of hope in Kabul. Um, we supported all kinds of women telling their stories and coming back into their bodies. We've inspired thousands of high school and college students to become activists. And we've created this amazing piece with Aja Minet called Voices, written and performed by black women. It's a beautiful soundscape that will be released this year. And we've lifted women inside and outside of prison. And we've been in solidarity, which is really so critical with communities struggling for liberation in the aftermath of black women being murdered by the police in the U.S., with women grappling with war, femicide, workers' rights, militarism, forced migration, resource displacement in Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Palestine, Congo, Haiti, and Juarez, Mexico. And we've been in deep solidarity with indigenous communities from Brazil to South Dakota and those seeking asylum and safety at our borders. But most importantly, I think if I look back over these 25 years, we have built a global network of gorgeous solidarity in almost every country in the world where activists give their lives to a world where women, trans and non-binary people are safe, free and empowered. And I think I think Monique and, and Christine typify um, the leadership and the brilliance and the solidarity of our movement. So let's go to Monique Wilson in the Philippines. I want to talk about what's happening there in your country. Uh, you're in Manila. But also, you're the global director of One Billion Rising. You can talk about what's happening all over the world. We deliberately did this a day before Valentine's Day, V-Day, um, so that um, we could start this conversation uh, this year uh, around what you want to accomplish and what people are doing. 
Yes, I think um, this year is a huge celebration year, of course, because it's 10 years of One Beyond Rising, 25 years of V-Day. But we also know that despite all our victories, despite all the transformations we've seen in legislation, in art, culture, education, in ways of consciousness and ways of thinking, um, as V said, you know, the tentacles of patriarchy are still so deeply embedded in everything. And it's all the normalization of that. And as you said earlier, the progeny of patriarchy, which is capitalism and division and shame and stigma and exclusion and this tidal wave of hate and um, discrimination. So I think our call to rise for freedom is really to get people to understand what is first of all, unless we understand that that is a huge form of violence. And we cannot end violence towards women, girls, transgender, non-binary people, gender diverse people, and the planet. And a lot of, of course, are saying around the plundering of the environment as well. And so tomorrow, um, we're going to see actually more than 88 countries now. As we're, as we're speaking, there's many, I think we're more than a thousand events. And it's very diverse what the rising for freedom means in many regions, like um, farm workers are rising for access to land, students are rising for um, accessible and good quality education, migrants are rising for uh, the end of labor exploitation, indigenous people are rising for um, the environment and the earth, and there's so many forms of the risings. But at the same time, we are all connected in this huge global movement that is connected in terms of that vision that we're seeing of a violence-free world. Because I think what patriarchy also has done somehow is it's, it's trying to remove the imaginative um, ability of people to see that future we're rising for. But I think what One Billion Rising and V-Day ha has done for 25 years, One Billion Rising has done for 10 years, is that it insists on imagining that vision because we actually can't rise for it unless we imagine it. That's why the art, as the biggest part of our activism, is the most potent and most catalytic um, way of getting people to really shift their consciousness around these concepts. So, you know, when we began One Billion Rising, it was to end violence. And then it, we went to Rise for Justice the second year, then Rise for Revolution for two years, and then Rise in Solidarity Against Exploitation. And then it went to Rising as a campaign to a way of life. And then we went to raising the vibration, how to use art to escalate. And then, you know, the pandemic actually didn't stop us. We had many more risings in the year of the, the first year of the pandemic, which was rising gardens. And then last year was rising for the bodies of all women and girls and the earth. So this year is rise for freedom. So it's really bringing in all the intersectional issues and also escalating it on a huge level where governments all around the world and the media will no longer be able to deny that this is really a pressing issue. And this is really like a state of emergency, we would say. And if it's a state of emergency, why aren't we acting accordingly? Let me ask you about what's happening in the Philippines right now. Um, has been in the headlines because you have the Biden administration reaching an agreement with the Philippines to give the United States access to four more military bases in, well, the former U.S. colony, allowing the U.S. greater access to the South China Sea and Taiwan as it escalates tensions with China. I mean, there have been major protests in the Philippines around this. The connection of militarism and violence against women, Monique? 
Well, you see, this is again a progeny of patriarchy, right? Imperialism is still very much happening. We don't anymore see um, colonization as how it was in the imperial years, but actually there is a huge colonization of our economy and of our minds that we think we have to be tied to a superpower. And of course, the superpower, which is the U.S., um, of course, capitalizes on that because there's much to gain from that. We, Philippines, as a geostrategic um, uh, place here in Asia for them. But at the same time, it's also our government here, every, every government we've had here, who has been like a puppet government of the U.S. and happily um, attaches itself uh, to the imperial power that is the U.S., and because we think we can't function on our own in terms of our own sovereignty. And of course, we depend um, economic and economically, and that's really what kind of neoliberal capitalism has also done, that the dependency now of um, more developing countries like ourselves, we, we are continually in this cycle of just having to depend on more developed countries. So yes, our One Billion Rising um, totally focuses on this. It totally focuses on militarization as a weapon to continue to colonize a country. At the same time, the way of colonizing a country is to harm its women. And we'll hear from Mama C about that because that's still ongoing in the Congo. And at the same time, it's really, it really escalates the violence that are happening all around the communities, as well as to the indigenous communities, and as well as to our environment and to our earth. And we wonder why when we have natural disasters that we can't, we can't ever rise above it because we're, we're continually in, a, in this cycle of need of economic need. And, and I think that's kind of really what patriarchy and imperialism and capitalism have done, is to, to keep that hierarchy in place. And, and yes, so I think rising, the rising for freedom includes that in a huge way because we cannot rise for freedom just personally. We have to rise for freedom collectively. We have to rise for freedom as a region, as a country, as nations all around the world, but also as, as, as a humanity, as a one humanity, that one cannot lord it over the other, which is really kind of what's happening now. So Monique Wilson is speaking to us from Manila, the capital of the Philippines. And we're going to go right now to Mama C, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to speak with Christine Schuler Describer of V-Day Congo, co-founder and director of City of Joy. Especially for young people, Christine, if you can talk about how you got involved with this whole movement, what City of Joy is uh, that you helped to establish with Dr. Mukwege and with V, so many years ago? Oh, good morning, Amy, and thank you for hosting, for hosting us. Uh, so City of Joy is a leadership community for um, women survivors of violence that I co-created with, uh, I co-founded with uh, Mama V and Dr. Uh, Mukwege. Uh, I met V in 2007. I was introduced to her by uh, Dr. Mukwege, and by the minute I met her, I, I totally fell in love with her because uh, I met a different person uh, than all the, the people we received who came here during the war, but they did nothing. They just left with lots of promises. And for the first time, a woman came and asked us what we wanted. So, and I think from... The time she started, you know, to interview the woman, 
with all the respect, you know, to bring their stories outside the country. And, you know, women were totally destroyed. They were leaking on her. So uh, I was like, I need to do something with them. At that time, I was uh, I was kind of uh, sick because, uh, you know, when you want to change things, but, but, but you can't as a human being, then uh, I, I just start, you know, with, with some kind of mental health. And uh, I, I really think that uh, also meeting and working with V saved my life and totally changed myself because she let us do what we wanted and decided as a V day with all the respect just to be the wind behind our back uh, to let us do whatever we thought would have been good, you know, for uh, our people. And I don't regret my choices because if I look uh, the the at the impact of uh, of our work and how transformative it is with uh, with the girls because it's a it's a leadership program and the emotional healing and at the same times uh, at the same times also uh, we 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 put in our program also the protection of uh, mother earth just a reminder that Congo is the second lung of humanity so we have all this holistic approach for the country for and, and for the the, 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 the the woman and it gives me hope because otherwise uh, as you know the the the, the world doesn't care they don't care about uh, about about us and I worked for more than than a, a decade for a big institution but what did we do by the time they left you know, all the projects collapsed. And working here with Vide, you know, we talk about sustainability. We have, we have a farm, we have uh, this, uh, this, this city of joy. And I, I really see, I really see the, 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 the result. I want to turn to the Nobel Peace Laureate, the Congolese gynecologist, Dr. Dennis Mukwege, founder of one of the only hospitals that treats victims of rape and mutilation in the DRC. Um, in 2009, he appeared on Democracy Now! and talked about his work in the hospital, speaking through an interpreter. When we take care of women at the hospital, these men, these women, are wounded physically, but are also traumatized profoundly. And it's not possible just like that to cure them. It takes time. Sometimes a lot of time. We cannot kick them out of the hospital. So we needed a place where women can stay to be taken care of and to train them to reinsert socially and to give them the possibility and the ability to take care of themselves and to be able to fight in life because they do have the capability of doing this. I have seen amazing transformations. There is an enormous potential in women that I did not imagine. They arrive completely destroyed and they fight. And they fight between life and death. 
vous les retrouvez avec une force. But they have an la cité de la joie va leur donner cette possibilité de les aider à dire qu'on vous a blessés, détruire. To tell that they have, people have tried to destroy them, but we can tell them that they are strong and can fight. So that is Dr. Denise. That's right, the Congolese gynecologist, Dr. Denise Mukwege, founder of the Panzi Hospital, where they uh, do operations uh, healing women who have been raped. Um, You, uh, Christine, have been working so closely with him and with V. That was an interview from 2009, almost um, 15 years ago. Yet you say the crisis and magnitude of rape in Congo today is unbelievable. Talk about who are the forces responsible for this. Uh, first of all, I want to correct that we are not the only hospital uh, now because we also have uh, Heal Africa uh, in Goma and also Panzi Hospital. They trained lots of doctors that they, they can make the same surgery uh, or in uh, the Democratic Republic uh, of Congo. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the, the rape continues. And if you, if I, when, whenever I go to the hospital, you know, like the beds are full. We do have raped children. We, we do have old women. So it feels like never, never, never ending. And I have to say we are, we are all so frustrated because sometimes I think Dr. Mukwege said now is, is treating, you know, the third generation. Like he, he treated the mother, the, the, the daughters, and now even the, 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 the children. And it doesn't end. As you probably heard, I'm not, I'm not sure because I know uh, that the, the, the world uh, don't talk about what's going on here. But there's a terrible war like in all eastern part of the RC, especially North Kivu, with the M2023. So uh, as you can imagine, the, 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 the first thing people, people do, uh, they, they, rape, they rape people. And we do have so many uh, militias and uh, the different armed groups totally out of control. So I, I'm very optimistic, but sometimes I'm just uh, wondering when I feel really, really down, how will we get out uh, uh, of it without a, without a revolution? And, you know, they, there are so many uh, um, Western countries who are involved in the plundering of Congo that they absolutely don't want this, this war to end. Because as long as it will be like this, you know, any people can just come and plunder uh, whatever they want because the country is so big and totally uh, out of control. Before we had the coltan, we, we had the uranium, and now we have the, the cobalt or electric cars. So sometimes it's like a, a nightmare, you know, uh, living and having such a rich country where people literally, literally starve. And the role of the surrounding African countries, who you hold responsible and what you think needs to be done, Christine Shula Descraver? You know, it's very, very, very difficult for me to say because uh, uh, even during the, like the worst time of the war, we had nine African countries who were involved. So it was like a, a world uh, world war, you know, African world war. And 
now we also have so many countries who are involved and each one are accusing uh, uh, the other one. So I think it's such a mess um, that I, I don't know how we will get out out of this. And also the, the what they call the, the, the peacekeepers. I'm sorry, I hate the word because I don't know. What are they keeping? Really, peace. They are in, in DRC since more than than 20 years, it cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. But we 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 are at the at the same point. You can take this. You you can take back all the speeches of uh, Mukwege he made uh, 15 years ago. It's still uh, it, it's still uh, the, the same. Nothing really changed except the the um, perpetrators. You know, just the names change a, a little bit. So. That's the, the situation, you know, we, we live in with uncertain uh, t- tomorrows. But I really think if the international community, if they wanted to end this war, look at, at Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine is in the middle of Europe. It's, a, it's such a tragedy because myself, every day when I watch the news, I cried. It's so tragic. But just compare to us, because in Ukraine, it's in the middle of Europe. You have blonde people, you have white people. So people are more moved than when you see uh, black people dying, trying, you know, to escape and cross the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea and die there. But no one cares. And then if you if you're lucky to reach like the Italian or the, the, the Greek uh, coast, then they don't let us uh, go, go, go there. But we are just fleeing, uh, you know, what the, the, the Western created here, the chaos. So can you imagine having peace here? Who wants to leave such a beautiful country like even the Great? Let's just talk about the Great Lake, Lake region. So they created this, this mess like they created it in, a, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, in Libya, etc., and then you know you you have to pay the consequences. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just fed up of all these um, these uh, hypocrisy, and I think all lives matter. I wanted to go back to V as we listen to Christine talking about the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the um, second largest country in Africa, the largest country in sub-Saharan Africa, the lack of media attention and the absolute crisis that's happening today. Uh, v, your book, your second memoir, is called Reckoning. Uh, talk about what you're reckoning with, from the personal to the global. Well, thank you, Amy. And I, I think this is deeply related to everything that Christine is talking about in terms of the Congo and the fact that things keep repeating and repeating and repeating because nothing is ever reckoned with. There is never any justice. There is complete impunity of all that's gone on in the last 14 years during this war. And I think what I'm trying to address in this book, I think 
over the period of COVID, for those of us who were privileged enough not have to be on the front lines in hospitals and serving people, we were kind of locked in with our thoughts and our memories and our tough, in my case, some, some toxic nostalgia where I had to really go in and address my life and reflect and reckon with my own personal history. At the same time, as the world was at our fingertips and in this country, we were going through several reckonings. First, there was the, the horrible, diabolical nine minutes of George Floyd with a knee on his neck and all that that excavated in terms of a history that's never been reckoned with here, a history of white supremacy and people being enslaved, a history of Jim Crow and mass incarceration. And then we had the infrastructure, the fact that we had no healthcare infrastructure or uh, uh, infrastructure that cares about people. And so we saw so many people dying, particularly black and brown people at much higher rates because there was no preparation or healthcare. And we saw our healthcare workers being sent in without, without, you know, wearing garbage bags and doubling up and wearing masks day after day. And then there was climate catastrophe where the West was burning and birds were literally falling out of the sky. So we were in this both collective and personal reckoning. And I think they're always they're always one and the same and they're not separate for me. And I think part of what I, we're seeing now in this country is that reckoning began. There was a beginning of this massive uprising around white supremacy and the history and on many issues. And what's happened since then is this fringe minority has pushed back against remembering, pushed back against our history. Look what's happening in the AP African-American studies where, where the schools are being taught that they can't teach certain great thinkers like Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw and Kianga Taylor and Angela Davis, you know, where we're saying we can't learn our history because people will be too disturbed by it. And 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 I I I say in the book, I think that reckoning is the anecdote to 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 fascism, that when we remember things, when we look at our past, when we walk through the wound, which becomes a portal to another way of living and being, we actually can begin to transform that past. But if we're not about reckoning, which this country has never been about, we keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And I think I look at the work in Congo we've been doing now for many years, and I look at, at Christine, who's been doing this work long before me, and Dr. McGuigan. How many times have they circled the globe to talk about the war, to talk about the economic exploitation and pillaging and 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 and, and extracting of minerals from Congo on the bodies of women? How many times have they told this story? And still. The world remains completely inured and completely uh, unable to hear the cries of the Congolese. And I don't think this is accidental. I think this is programmed, as Christine said, because there is money to be made and resources to be stolen. And I think we're seeing that same trend across the world and and that same trend of a refusal to reckon with our history, to look at where we come from, that we're, we, we sit on a country that was stolen from the indigenous people who lived here. And we there was genocide and the destruction of their tradition and ways. And and that is what this country is founded on. And until we make peace with that by reckoning with it and remembering it and making reparations for it, we will continue, continue to create that violence in the future. Why did you change your name to V? Um, 
I well, it's an interesting story. Uh, you know, I wrote the apology um, in 2019, which was a letter that I wrote to my father because I had waited most of my life waiting for my father to apologize to me for the sexual and physical violence he had enacted on my body and being, and that never happened. And I finally decided after watching um, a lot of the people who had been called out in Me Too, a lot of the men, I didn't hear one public apology. Um, I didn't hear one man taking responsibility or doing deep reflection that we could see about what he had done. I realized I had to write my father's apology for him. So I wrote the book, The Apology, which was excruciating, but it was also very liberatory because I finally began to understand, not justify, what my father who my father was. And I came to see that I had very little to do with me. We have 15 end, seconds. V. At the end of that book, he was gone. And I realized I didn't want that name anymore. I had no more rancor towards my father, but I wanted my own name that was clear of that patriarchal history, which had never involved my best interests. Well, I want to thank you all so much for being with us. V, formerly Eve Ensler, playwright founder of V Day and One Billion Rising, 25th anniversary and 10th anniversary. Her new memoir, Reckoning, and Monique Wilson, as well as Christine Schuler, Describer. Thank you.